Egypt's enemies could destroy them. They could not go west where an uninhabitable desert stretched to the shores of a limitless, salty, and undrinkable ocean. The Sanawa had distilled their religious beliefs from the traditions, rituals, and practices of their trading partners, the Mogollon, Anasazi, Aokum, and Mesoamerican tribes. They did not practice human sacrifice like the Toltecs from Mesoamerica, yet they knew that they had to do something radical to perform penance for their sins and to win back the spirit's favor. As restitution, the elders selected the most beautiful maiden in all of their polity, a northern refugee of 15 summers. They would offer her to assuage the spirit's anger. Unable to engage in the bloodletting of the Mesoamericans, the tribal elders drugged the maiden with mushrooms after numbing her with beer brewed from the harvested corn. The shaman planned to lower the drugged girl to the bottom of the sacred sinkhole adjacent to the ceremonial site, leaving her fate to the servants. Fearing retribution, once they arrived at the site, the clansmen hurried to lower the girl into the sinkhole, using a rope that their women had woven from strands of wild cotton plants. They tied the rope to a tall pine and allowed her to remain suspended ten feet above the floor of the sinkhole. They begged the spirit to accept the maiden as reparation. After the ceremony, they left, promising to honor the taboos and return to the holy site to perform those customs required by the servants of the spirit. All would have been well, but the maiden's clan was northern Sanawa. After sunset, her father and two brothers, who had shadowed the procession, stole into the narrow draw that surrounded the sinkhole. The father and brothers located the cotton rope tied to the pine tree. When they touched the rope, they knew something dreadful had occurred. The cotton line felt slack and weightless. No body hung from it. Pulling it up, they inspected the end by the light of a small torch that the brother held. Something sharp had severed the line. The father had never seen a cleaner cut. No edged stone weapon could have made it. The cut end looked blackened and charred. It bore the odor of burned cloth. The maiden's father cursed the spirit. Before the men could search the sinkhole, a shooting star shot across the sky from the north to the south. An evil omen. A moment later, the star stopped cold and turned from the south, sped north, then west, and then east at unimaginable speeds. Nothing in the hunter-gatherer's experience had prepared him. He and his sons froze in place like stalked deer. They watched in horror as the star turned towards them. It slowed down and stopped over the sinkhole. The star grew as it descended, casting a pale white light on the three northern clansmen. The father regretted his foolishness. To avoid the wrath of the servants, he and his sons ran from the ceremonial site. They fled southeast on a long slog toward the village. The next day, the spirit signaled his satisfaction. The rains began. The shaman declared that the offering had brought the life-giving moisture to the valley once again. Over the next several years, steady rains and fertile ash from the new volcano turned the upper Verde Valley into a garden. The rains persisted for two generations. Chapter 1. God created the Grand Canyon, but he lives in Sedona. New York Times. September 2, 1966, 7.15 p.m., Northern Courtyard, Chapel of the Holy Cross, south of Uptown Sedona, Arizona. Dan Ostergaard and I teetered on the stone bench facing west. We perched high on the retaining wall that formed the northernmost edge of the courtyard surrounding the chapel. 
Dangling our legs 50 feet above the next outcropping, we sipped beer and nibbled fried chicken as we watched the magnificent light show develop on the other side of Sherman Mountain. Tony, you were right. This place is gorgeous. I thought you were full of shit when you said it was stunning. This is special. I had no idea, Dan said, while focusing on the miracle above the mountains. I told you that you'd like it, dickhead. Eat me, Dan said, too distracted to engage in serious repartee. Blow me, I said, in the adolescent custom that Dan and I had adopted over our years at Arizona State and Brophy Prep in Phoenix. By the time Dan and I found ourselves drinking beer on the high Butte's cutting edge next to one of Sedona's spectacular architectural marvels, I'd lived in Arizona for 13 years. My family had moved west in 1953. I'd grown up in Phoenix as the town evolved from a desert oasis into a major metropolis. My parents were working class. Mom labored as a tailor and dad drove.